You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. So as we move back into um, our series, I wanted to continue to roll into Eastertide together. Um, if you, some of you have said to me <clears throat> that taking the time this year, and we've done it every year, so I think some of us are just awakened to it differently uh, than maybe we have been in the past, but that moving into the season of Lent, moving through Holy Week, uh, taking time to be slow, um, or at least uh, intentional, has been very helpful. I know some of you have said that the WCC Daily Reflections are helpful. Uh, the reflections are geared toward the seasons. Um, they're thematic each week. There's a daily verse, a daily voice, which is usually a quote from somebody. Um, varied quotes, diverse quotes, and then a daily prayer that's usually written um, by us. And then every now and then there'll be <clears throat> a daily voice that's written maybe by me or, or someone. And we send that out in the hopes that it keeps your mind fresh Monday through Friday, just within a three to five minute time of reading, if even really that, and praying. We're moving into Eastertide. Eastertide is a unique season in the Christian calendar for us. And if this is new to you, then maybe consider embracing this. So Lent is supposed to be the time where we think about life in its most somber way. We remember that from dust we were formed and to dust we will return. Lent becomes this season of giving up and grabbing, holding on and taking off toward new places with our humanity in mind, recognizing that our need for Jesus is real and deep and even our need for repentance. So repentance becomes a continuing ethic for us in Lent. So Lent has this kind of blues in the life of the mind feel where we are given permission and even encouraged by the calendar to embrace all the broken things of the world, to embrace our own frailties, to, to embrace our own fragility. And then we move to Holy Week and we see how our frailty and fragility is bound up in the body of Jesus. How Jesus, when Jesus took on, when God took on flesh, God took on the frailties and the fragilities. God experienced the betrayals and abandonments and the hurt and the abuses and the violence of a world that was in denial, refusing the way of God's love. And we follow Jesus through that shared sense of humanity into the cross. And then resurrection comes. And we come together and we remember that none of those things have the final word. That our frailty, our fragility, and even the worst life has to offer doesn't have the final word. And so we come out of the cross into resurrection where we say He has risen. We don't have to just say it one day, you know, a year, y'all. Like, like, and so we proclaim it. And then that becomes Easter tide. And it's called Easter tide because the church then is invited to ride the tide of Easter. We are now invited to no longer just focus on the things of death and hope for life. We're invited to focus on life in light of the things of death. That no matter the clouds, no matter the rain, no matter the darkness, the light of Christ will shine through. Easter tide is a time to move from blues in the life of the mind into praise in the spirit of the heart. Where we're still honest with the broken things. We're not going to explain it away. We've gone through Lent. We're familiar with the broken things. Are you with me? But we move toward life. We bend toward life. The arc of all injustice bends toward justice. Bends toward love. Eastertide becomes the time we ride into resurrection life. 
So what I wanted to do today was, in light of this series, just give us one more tipping point toward Eastertide. And I want us to check a theme in Scripture that is very clearly there and that ought to be considered in the hopes that when you journey on through life and you see a bird in the air or a garden in a field, that you'll think differently. So, if you want to scan the QR code that was up here, hopefully you scanned the QR code that was up here earlier, and you can access the notes if you want to scan that access to notes. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and the man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden. Everybody say garden. In Eden, in the east, and there he placed the man he had formed. The Lord God caused to grow out of the ground every tree, pleasing in appearance and good for food, including the tree of life in the middle of the garden, as well as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river went out from Eden to water the garden. From there it divided, became the source of four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon, which flows through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. Gold from the land is pure. Delam and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is Gion, which flows through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris, which runs east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to watch over it. And then later on in Genesis 3, verse 8, we're told after Adam and Eve had fallen and taken on their own authority above God's, it says, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden. At the time of the evening breeze, and they hid themselves from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. You hear a repetitive theme in that creation story? I've always wondered why the creation story begins with a garden. And I've wondered, is it because a garden paints a scene that puts God's creative power and beauty on display like maybe no other place? The diversity of colors, smells, textures, the sounds of rushing waters, all pointing to one life-giving presence, God as creator. Why a garden? And I'm not really sure Scripture is concerned with answering these questions, so I can't really say, but I can say this. The garden shows that God simply wants to be with us. It also reminds us that wherever God is, new life is possible. Everybody say new life. The scripture tells us actually that the whole creation and the whole story of God is moving toward the image of another garden. A garden where death will be no more and life alone will flourish. So if you take the first page of the first book of the Bible and flip all the way to the last page of the last book of the Bible, you'll catch this image of a garden in the new heavens and new earth. Revelation 22, verse 1 through 5. Then the angel showed me the river of life-giving water shining like crystal flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the city's main street. On each side of the river is the tree of life, which produces 12 crops of fruit, bearing its fruit each month. Trees' leaves are for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse. 
The throne of God and the Lamb of God will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face. And his name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. They won't need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun. For the Lord God will shine on them. And they will rule forever and always. I can't help but wonder why the image of another garden. And I can't really say for sure. But I can say this. The garden shows that God simply wants to be with us. And it also reminds us that wherever God is, new life is possible. Now, in between the first garden and the last garden, we find Jesus suffering and praying in a different garden. And John verse 18 verse 1 says this, After Jesus had said these things, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley where there was a garden. And he and his disciples went into it. And we know that that is the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus prayed, felt the weight of what was to come. And I can't help but wonder why another garden? Did Jesus choose a garden because it reminded him of God's desire to be with us always? Did, he, did a garden remind him of how new life is always possible even as death awaits? That as seeds, surely as seeds are buried beneath the ground, rise up to new life so too could death give way to new life? I can't really say for sure that Scriptures doesn't answer why this motif of garden is being woven throughout, but what I can say is that the garden shows us that God simply wants to be with us. And it also reminds us that wherever God is, life is still possible. New life is possible. And here it is, again, another garden. John chapter 19, verse 41. There was a garden in the place Jesus was crucified. A new tomb was in the garden. No one had yet been placed in it. They placed Jesus there because of the Jewish preparation since the tomb was nearby. Now Jesus is buried. In a garden. But this garden of death would become a garden of new life when Jesus wakes up, gets up, and walks out of the tomb. And I can't help but wonder why then another garden? Why is it that when Mary sees a man walking through the garden who we know is Jesus, Mary wonders, Scripture tells us, is this the gardener? Ha ha. And maybe it is. From a garden to a garden, through two gardens, God reminds us in beautiful repetition that no matter what we have done and where we are going, God wants to be with us. And wherever God is, new possibilities of new life surround us. We just have to wake up and believe. I was thinking of a book, portions of a book I had read. I've, I've never read the whole book because it's of Hildegard of Bingen, who's a 12th century Christian mythic and, uh, mystic and theologian. I don't know if you've ever tried to read any Christian 
mystics and theologians from the Middle Ages, but like it's, it's like chewing on glass. I mean, it, it's some tough reading, all right? So I haven't read the whole thing, and I don't have to the way it's read out because it's uh, actually the book is entitled Hildegard of Bingen's Book of Divine Works with Letters and Songs. And she, she Hildegard, is this is the only, like, one of the only recognized female theologians of her age. And she wrote theology. She wrote music, poetry. And she gave a great deal of her life to medical science. See, Hildegard was a botanist. And she, she studied plants. And she was fascinated with the beauty and purpose of all living things, especially gardens. And her curiosity to discovery... Uh, to the discovery of, of, of the beauty of, of, of gardens and plants and life led to the discovery of new medicinal properties found in plants, flowers. She became one of the greatest medical writers of the Middle Ages. And there's more I could say about her, but I'll say this, this, this last thing. She spent her life working to bring beauty, new life, and healing into the world even as she herself experienced immense suffering. Well, in this book, this book of divine works with letters and songs, there's an analogy she makes that has captured me for a long time. It's simple, but there's depth to it. She says that Christians need to fly throughout life with two wings of awareness. The one wing is an awareness of life's glory and beauty. That's the knowledge of all that is good. The other wing is an awareness of life's pain and suffering, the knowledge of all that is evil. And she says that if we lack one or the other, we'll be like an eagle trying to fly with only one wing. We'll fall to the ground instead of rising up to the fullest vision of life. In other words, we will not truly see the world as it is, and we will not truly see the Lord as He is, and we will not then truly understand who we can be. See, too many times we want to move through things flying with one wing. We don't want to look at the pain and suffering anymore. There's enough of that on TV. We don't don't even want to face the hard of our lives. We don't want to have the hard conversations, especially in church. We want, to, we want to scapegoat it all. We just want somebody to make us feel good about the world. But if we take that approach and we live our lives with willful denial and willful blindness, then we're just going to be like a bird trying to fly with one wing. And we will not rise up to see the fullness of life. Because if we ignore the pain and suffering, how will we see God turn it for good? If we ignore the death, how will we see New life spring from death. And so some of us, though, we are so blues in the life of the mind, that's all we can see. We don't see the glories and the beauty all around us. We don't see the life-giving stories of hope and goodness and purpose. Because all we see is the other. And even still, we are then like a bird flying with one wing. And we will not rise up. And we will not see the contrast of the dark and light of the light. We will not see the contrast of the dull and the beauty. All we'll see are the colors and our lives will become so enamored by them, so maybe even numb by them that we don't know what to do then when pain and suffering strike. Because we aren't familiar with both. We are living in a moment 
time that invites a new sense of awareness. We hear stories every day from around the world filled with terrible suffering and loss. And at the same time, we hear stories of great beauty and love. And if we do not receive all these stories, both glory and beauty, pain and suffering, we will not rise up in new life. We will not embrace new possibilities because we will live in denial or partial knowledge and we'll just be clinging to the old ones. See, when we don't live life in the fullness and understand that in the gardens of life, there are both. There's barrenness and beauty. There's death and life. Then we will constantly cling to the old possibilities. We'll cling to what we once knew. We'll pursue what we once knew. We'll even make statements like, well, the world used to be better then. And we'll forget the words of Ecclesiastes who says, stop saying that the former things were better than the now. It's like what my old mentor brother Denny used to say, the good old days are nothing more than a combination of a bad memory and a good imagination. And we will find ourselves stuck in a loop of impossibilities, trying to reach for old possibilities and miss the new possibilities that resurrection promises. Not, not, not hopes for, promises. It's like John Philip Newell said, let's be alive to the inexpressible glory of every moment. And at the same time, let's pay attention to the unspeakable sufferings that are happening at the moment within us, within our nation, within our families, within the creatures. Let's allow ourselves that sort of deep strength to weep. We must understand, beloved, that every garden we move through will include both hard endings and suffering, new beginnings and resurrection. Each garden will hold this barrenness and beauty, this death and life in its tension, and it will come in seasons. And to be fully alive to the presence of God is to be fully aware of both these glories and sorrows within and all around us. When we are fully alive and fully aware, we can rise up to the truth that God is always with us and new life is always possible because Christ is risen For example, some of us are living with these regrets of our lives. Everybody say regrets. We all, maybe all of us have some. And some of us need to be reminded that when it comes to the regrets we carry, we actually can grow and mature in our faith. We can learn contentment. The regrets that ring out in the back of our minds along with the consequences we carry can be placed in submission by faith in the risen Christ where there are new possibilities for new life. Christ was with us in those regrets. We may have dismissed his presence. We may have even clung we may be we may have clung tightly to it, but he was with us regardless then and is with us now. And no matter the death dealing things we encountered, life giving things await us. You may not feel this to be true. But you can know it's true simply because you are here right now listening to this particular word. God has a word for you. Remember the resurrection story, beloved. Christ doesn't stay in the garden of death. Christ woke up, got up, and walked out of the garden tomb forever making gardens of death 
places where new life is possible. God in Christ turns graves into gardens. Listen, nothing that happens is beyond redemption because there is nothing God can't redeem. Christ has risen. No one here is beyond restoration because there is no one God can't restore. Christ has risen. Some of us need to be reminded as we stare at the foot of some valley or maybe just some plain we're living in, some good level ground and we're looking at the things to come and we see a big old hill we have to climb, the the hill is steep. And we need to be reminded that we can climb up the steep hills of life. No matter how exhausted our legs may be. No matter how impossible it feels. There's no hill God's people can't climb. The Lord will climb every hill with us. The Lord knows all about hills. Because He climbed the hill of Calvary. And at the top of Calvary's hill, He met the worst violence death had to offer and overcame it. So when... We meet the death-dealing things of this world. We can overcome it too. He's promised to always be with us. He's shown us that no matter what awaits us at the top of whatever hill we must climb, new life is possible. Remember the resurrection, beloved. Christ does not stay in the garden of death. Christ woke up, got up, and walked out of that garden tomb, forever making gardens of death places where new life is possible. God in Christ can turn graves into gardens. The Scriptures are begging us to see this. The Scriptures are inviting us to believe this. From a garden to a garden Through two gardens, God is reminding us in beautiful repetition that no matter what we have done or where we are going, God wants to be with us. And wherever God is, new possibilities surround us. New life is always possible. Because Christ is our deliverer. Christ is our Savior. The Bible says He is our Redeemer, Son of Man, Son of God, Lion of Judah, Lamb of God, the Way, the Truth, and the Life, Creator God, the Alpha and Omega, the Beginning and End. Scripture says He's the Prince of Peace, the Great I Am, the Light of the World, the Power of God, the Judge of the Living, and the Judge of the Dead, worthy of all honor, worthy of all praise. He will never leave you, never forsake you. He is good in a world filled with evil. He is Jesus. He is God. He is the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. He has come. He is with us. And when He comes again in His fullness, every garden of death will forever be destroyed and the world will only know gardens of life. And in between, we live in between. But let us never forget that the gardens of death for the life of those who confess Jesus is risen, gardens of death turn to life. You know, it never fails when I think of gardens. I always remember my grandma. 
and many of you know we were very close when I was young. She taught me about gardening. I can still see her sporting that straw sun hat while wearing her navy blue pants with a sleeveless button-up shirt. Every now and then, memories of us on our hands and knees in our garden turn my thumb a little green and makes me want to plant a garden. But I'm too lazy. It's too hot. So her message didn't stick. She's a person of nurture and life. She was a gardener of my young, young soul. When we did not have a home, my mom and dad and I, we lived with her. And I spent many, many days and summers with her. And I remember in her garden, I remember this fence that she built around it. My, my 72-year-old grandmother built a fence. She was something special. And now the defense was meant to keep out the unwanted critters and preserve the garden. That's what fences would do. Right, but there was a problem with the gate, and it was a bit temperamental. And so every time we would go out to step into the garden, she would have to always take her shovel handle and beat that fence until she could finally get it open. And she would do so with such grace, but she would beat it like a boss. And then finally we could get inside the garden. What I learned about my grandma was she was a much better gardener than a gatekeeper. And when I think about how gardens are woven throughout our story of faith, life beginning in a garden of Eden, suffering in the garden of Gethsemane, finding newness in a garden of Christ's resurrection, and never-ending life in a garden city of the new heavens and new earth, I can't help but think about how it's not good enough just for us to sit here and receive the news that new life is always possible in every garden we walk because we are the people of Christ. That is true, and give God praise for it. But there is something now must happen inside of us as a result of that beautiful truth. See, I, I can't help but think about how then we all should learn to be gardeners. Some of us need to let go of the need to be gatekeepers. It's too easy for us to make the garden all about us. But in the words of Pastor Dante Stewart, we live in a country full of Bibles but empty of love. Too many of us in the church want to be gatekeepers, not enough want to be gardeners. Gardeners know how to tend the garden because Christ is with us and we know the story of our faith revealed in the Scriptures to guide us. Gardeners know the difference between the death-dealing weeds and the life-giving plants. We know the difference between the death-dealing ways of the reign of sin and death and the life-giving ways of the kingdom of grace. Gardeners always believe life is possible in the garden. But those gardeners, if they ever find that it's too stubborn and life just isn't coming up, wise gardeners reach out to other gardeners for help. We step into Eastertide with an Eastertide hope, beloved, that nothing that happens is beyond redemption because there is nothing God can't redeem. No one we meet is beyond restoration because there is no one God can't restore. But, beloved, it's got to look like something in our lives. It's got to transform how 
we live and how we love. And I can't help but think, when I think of gardens, how we make better gardeners than gatekeepers. Because when God's people love well and extend gracious hospitality to others, we participate in cultivating human flourishing. We're like gardeners planting seeds of hope through genuine acts of love offered neighbor to neighbor in the garden of society where the the fruit of mercy, compassion, kindness grows from our lives and spills into the lives of others. Life together becomes life-giving as a community of gardeners cultivated to life by the gardener who could not stay dead. People feel seen in this community, known, appreciated, loved. Joys are celebrated, burdens are shared. The unwanted are welcomed. The vulnerable are valued. The hurting are held. The sick are supported. The widows are watched over. The displaced are defended. The fear of the other is disarmed. Mercy can lead us. Wisdom can guide us. Compassion and convict us. Generosity can sustain us. This is human flourishing. And it's what happens when people of faith and goodwill become like gardeners. But when we become like gatekeepers, nothing new gets planted. Nothing new grows from our lives or the lives of others. Many among us will feel excluded, unknown, unappreciated, unloved, alone. The categories that society uses to tell us to whom we should belong or not belong will continue to be strictly managed. Many around us will remain displaced. Animosity will lead us. Foolishness will guide us. Fears of scarcity will sustain us. Only a few are allowed in while others are kept out. And the faith and virtues that we hold and the confession we make of a risen Christ will wither and die. Gatekeepers are committed to preservation. Gardeners are committed to new possibilities. Beloved, what you going to be? A gatekeeper or a gardener? We are better off as gardeners than gatekeepers. And let's be candid. It's much better to walk through life holding the tension of glory and beauty, pain and suffering, when we are in the company of other gardeners who know how to tend the garden when we cannot or believe new life is possible when we do not. It is much better to be in a community of gardeners who follow the risen gardener who would not stay dead. Because where there is death, in the Christian heart and imagination through the Christian confession, there is always the possibilities of life. Because Christ is always turning graves into gardens. You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast.